I want to welcome you. I've been gone for two weeks, and so it's, it's good to be back. Um, it's good to be back and to, um, with those that you, you fellowship with. You, uh, you, know, you don't miss it until you don't have it, and so it's, it's nice to be here. Well, we have been spending this um, last year considering Christ, which is always important anyway, but specifically the shadow of Christ. Look, as we um, are focusing on the Christ, uh, doing a new series, and um, the first part of the focusing on the Christ is looking at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and what God had been revealing throughout history about the coming of the Christ, the coming of Messiah. Um, it, again, as I've mentioned in the past, it should not have come of great surprise to those when Jesus came to the earth, though it did. Um, and even to those who, who knew the Scripture and who knew what the prophecies were, they still rejected Him when He came. It was an amazing thing. And so as we've started this series, we've seen Jesus as the Creator, the uh, Lord of Sabbath and Lord of Creation. We've seen Him as the seed of woman, as the Redeemer, the seed of Abraham. We've seen Him as the, the priest who was in the order of Melchizedek. We saw Him as the, the Lamb of God when Abraham was told to offer up Isaac, and uh, that, that was fulfilled in Christ. We saw Him as the way, as we considered the ladder of Jacob, Jacob's ladder. We saw Him as the coming king, as we saw the, the prophecy to, the, to Judah, that the the scepter would not depart from Judah. We saw him as our Passover lamb as well, as Israel was being brought out of the, uh, the land of Egypt. And at that time, we began kind of almost like a, a subset of this whole thing, looking at the coming of Christ as he was being demonstrated in this period of time of Israel in the wilderness, this, this journeying time. And so as they came out of Egypt, he was the Passover lamb that was there, but then we saw him as the Shekinah Kabod, the Shekinah glory, or the, the tabernacling glory of God, which was represented by that pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. And so he is the, we saw him as the light of the world. We saw him as the bread of life as we examined the manna that was coming to the earth and how God provided the provision of food for the, the people of Israel every day for 40 years, and that Jesus was called that, that manna. He was the bread of life. And that's going to come back into um, in the, 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 um, to what we're going to talk about today, into, into the, the mix here today. And then the living water, that as um, Moses uh, struck the rock and brought forth the water, and then later he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he didn't. He said, must we bring you forth water again, took God's glory, and he struck the rock again a second time. We saw that that rock is Jesus, and that he was the, the living water that came forth from the rock. And so Jesus proclaimed himself to be that um, during the, the feast when he said that if any man thirst, let him come unto me. We saw then as well as we considered the Aaronic priesthood that Jesus is the true mediator, that he is um, the priest that we go to, that there is no other mediator between God and men other than Christ Jesus. We saw then the sin sacrifice. We looked at the book of Leviticus and we considered the, the sin sacrifice was there and we considered how the that was all to be done, how the, the, uh, the, the one who had sinned, the sinner, would come with his sacrifice. He was the place to place his head upon the, the head of the lamb, upon the head of the bullock. What did I say? Place his hands, what did I say? His head. Well, he could do that too. That'd be kind of weird, but anyways. But yeah, he placed his hands upon the head of the, the, the lamb or the bullock, and he would confess his sins. And again, what we talked about is in 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sin that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that word for confession is to agree with God. 
at what it is. It's gross, it's abominable, it's a stench before his nostrils. What you've done is not just a little, oh, it's okay, I'll wink at that. It was, it's awful. Even lying lips, we're told in the Bible, lying lips are an abomination to God. Okay? And as we saw in Sunday school, that God is what? Anybody remember? He's ah sudes, which means that he's what? Without deceit. He, he's, he's totally without any deception, without any un, untruth. Okay? There's no falseness in him at all. He does not lie. And so you come and you place your hands upon it, you confess the sin, and then the, the priest, then after you would kill the sacrifice, you would slice the sacrifice, they would capture the blood, and then the priest would, would dip his finger in the blood, he would sprinkle it seven times on the altar, and then he would anoint the horns of the altar with the blood, and then after the sacrifice was complete, he would pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And we saw that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That it, as Jesus was, was, had the, the crown of thorns placed upon him as his, as his back was whipped, and as he had to carry his own cross, that his blood, coming off his back, coming out of his brow, was being sprinkled upon the altar. And then when he was laid there on the cross, on the altar, if you would, okay, there on, on Golgotha at, at Calvary, and as they, they would put those those um, spikes through his, his hands and through his feet, that the four horns of the altar were being anointed with the blood of the sacrifice. Then after the sacrifice was complete, Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. He gave up his ghost. And then the, the Roman soldier came, the Roman guard came, seeing that he was dead already, did what? Stuck the spear up through, under his ribs, in through his heart, and outpoured the blood and water, which showed that he was already dead, that the blood was already separating, and so the rest of the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. Jesus Christ literally fulfilled the sin sacrifice of the book of Leviticus. It's kind of a fun thing. You know, again, I just want to encourage you, God doesn't put random thoughts out there for no reason. Okay? The word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's there for a purpose. Okay? We saw him on resurrection day. What a beautiful time. God timed that whole thing out for us to be looking at Christ as the first fruits on the Feast of First Fruits. That's what Resurrection Day is. Easter is. It's the celebration of the Feast of First Fruits. We don't understand that in our Gentile culture. We haven't looked at that. But if you look again back at the Old Testament, you look at the Hebrew culture, the Feast of First Fruits is the first day after the Shabbat of um, Passover. Okay, In Jesus' day, you would have had the, the, the High Sabbath, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread on Friday. You would have had the weekly Shabbat, the weekly Sabbath on Saturday. And the next day after the Shabbats would have been first fruits, which was the day that Jesus raised from the dead and became the first fruits of the dead. It's an exciting thing. Again, God's timing was put out there. You know, Jesus said, he would, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so must the Son of the Son of Man be. And so, you can believe what you want. I believe Jesus died on a Thursday. I believe he was in the ground then Friday and Saturday. And he raised from the dead in fulfillment of the Old Testament feasts in the word that he declared himself regarding the, the, the testimony of Jonah. So, we have seen all these things as we come through. And we want to continue then this look of Israel coming through as we look today um, again, them in the wilderness. And if I, if I could, I would like you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, where I want to read the first nine verses. We read John 3 for our Bible reading this morning, and we're going to go back to that because that's the fulfillment of this passage. 
in Numbers 21, beginning of verse 1, we read, The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Athaim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And Yahweh listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he will take away the serpents um, from among us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be everyone that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at a bronze serpent, he lived. In this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus being the cure. He is, as the serpent was held up in the wilderness, we're told Jesus said himself, as the serpent was held up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so we want to look at, first of all, the practical application of this passage as we consider it. And the first thing we want to look at in these people is their sin. Okay? The sin of insurrection. And this is what we're going to see in these people. This is not a good testimony. Um, at, at all, but so many times we act like these these Israelites, and I don't want to just neglect it and kind of shy away from it. So first of all, this sin of insurrection. Well, what's insurrection? It's the rebellion against an authority. Now, I know that you never have done that, okay? But the, the fact is, if you take sin and you boil it down, sin is rebellion. In CEF clubs, and in the Good News clubs for, for child evangelism fellowship, we teach them that sin is... Anytime you think, say, or do anything that's displeasing to God. Now, that's a nice thing, nice way of saying it. When you think, say, or do something that's displeasing to God. The reality is, if you bring it down more concisely, it's when you think, say, or do something that's in disobedience to what God has declared. God said, pray. You said, no. God said, don't do that. You said, but I want to. If you boil that down, if mom or dad said do this and you don't do it, or mom or dad said don't do that and you do it, what is that? It's rebellion. That's exactly right. And therefore you are a what? A rebel. Now we don't want to say that about ourselves. But it's a fact. And these people demonstrated this sin of insurrection, the sin of rebellion. Now how did it, how did it come out? Well, let's look at what's going on here in Numbers, or Numbers 21. They were just had a, a, a war with the king of Arad. Yes? Okay? And, and after they defeat the king of Arad, what do you think the people want to do? Celebrate. Okay, so celebrate. But they're getting ready to move. Where do you think they want to move? Where, Daniel? Into the land. They want to go into the promised land. Well, we've got a problem with that, though. 
See, God tried to get them into the promised land a couple chapters before Numbers. There was the, you know, the, 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 the how, see, kids, you got to help remind me how to do this, right? The 12 men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good, right? What do you think they saw on Canaan, right? The ten were bad and two were good. So the, so the 12 guys go out, they spy on Canaan, and they come back, right? And Jake, uh, Joshua and Caleb, my favorite characters of the Bible, okay? Joshua and Caleb, they're faithful, they're true. They come back, and they declare what? They declare the truth. These guys are big. <laughs> these, guys, these guys are big. It, but you know what? Everything God said about the land is true. But these guys are big. But our God's what? Our God's bigger. But what did the ten, guy, the ten, the ten other spies say? Oh, we're like grasshoppers. They're going to squash us. God's brought us here so that our kids are going to be destroyed. You know, we're going to go up there. Everything's going to be lost. I can't believe this. We, need, we better not do that. They're looking at stoning Joshua and Caleb for their testimony. They want to kill Moses and Aaron. And God says what? No, that, was, that was the second thing he said. First thing he says was, Moses, it's time. They're, I'm wiping them out, and I'm starting afresh with you. And Moses says what? Kill me. Kill me. Don't, don't do that, God. Don't do that. If you wipe them all out here in the, in the wilderness, your name's, your name's trash. I mean, he didn't say it that way, but we would say it that way. It, it, it's gone. Because what's everybody else going to say? He, couldn't, he took them out in the wilderness, and he couldn't get them into the land, so he wiped them out in the wilderness. Don't do it, God. If you're going to do it, wipe me out too. God says, okay, Moses, I, I, I hear you, and I will change my direction. But here's what's going to happen. They thought their kids would be killed. Forty years, one for every day, one year for every day that the, the spies were in the land, they're going to spend in the wilderness. And all the, the, those who were adults will die in the wilderness. And the children whom they thought would die will inherit the land. So, so this sin of insurrection, they, they, they want to go into the promised land. They want to go back into the promised land. But what does God direct Moses to do? To go around the land of Edom. See, in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, they petitioned the, 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 the nation of Edom to be able to pass through. It would be a more direct route to be able to pass through Edom coming up the, the east side of the, of, the, of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And Edom said, no, you can't do that. They said, well, we won't touch anything. We're just going to go along the road, and we're just going to head on up. They said, no, you're not going to do that. You touch a foot on our road, and we're going to take it as an act of war. But God didn't want Israel fighting with Edom. Does anybody know why? Because they're brothers. Who's Edom? Esau. That's exactly right. You had Jacob and Esau. Jacob was Israel. Edom was Esau. So he says, I don't want you fighting against your brother. Some of you need to listen to that, all right? I don't want you fighting with your what? Your brother. Okay. Didn't say anything about sisters. Anyways. Um, anyways. <laughs> You're welcome, Mark. Appreciate it. Anyways. Don't fight. Okay? So he takes them all the way, does an end around, around Edom. So there's no altercation with Edom. And the people take this as what? As a bad deal. First of all, they rejected then the direction of God. God had a purpose for their life. God was moving them in a certain direction. They had already rejected, so God changed things. So God's being consistent with what he's done in their life. But they say what? 
Meow, meow, meow. So my question to you is, is this to me, what about you? What about me? What about us? Are you guilty of grumbling about God's direction in your life? Does God moving you certain places, you know, in the wilderness, however, and you say what? You don't get it, God. I want to be there. And so we become discontent. Look what it says about them. It says, and the people became very what? Discouraged on the way. And because they were discouraged on the way with God's direction, they began to what? Grumble and murmur and whine and complain. Now, I know that you probably haven't gotten on your knees before God and literally whined and complained and murmured and disputed with him. But don't we do that when we're talking to other people about our lives? When we show great discontent in it? In the I wish I could haves? And only ifs? What does it say? That God hasn't what? He hasn't known what he's been doing. Now, the reality is, why are they in the wilderness now? Their own fear? Because they what? They rebelled against God. And there's a consequence for rebellion against God. They didn't believe him. There are those who engage in marital relationships that shouldn't be engaged in before they're married, right? You all understand that, okay? And there's consequences for that, isn't there? The consequences don't go away. They ought not go away. And if they seek to put, do them away, I think you're tracking with me, adults, yes? If they seek to get rid of the consequences, then there's consequences of those consequences. Right? And we keep trying to get rid of the what? Consequences. And all we do is make greater consequences. Other than submitting to the direction of God in our life. We're going to see this in a moment, but the wages of sin is what? Death. The gift of God is life. Eternal life. But only when we heed God in his direction do we find life. When we rebel against God in his direction, all we're going to find is death. And literally the children of Israel found what? Death. Forty years of walking through that wilderness. Marsh and I had the privilege many years ago of walking through the Negev, that wilderness, for a day. Actually, it wasn't even a full day. It was probably about six hours to eight hours. That was enough. Now, it was fun to me because I knew what? I'm getting back on the bus and I'm going back. This is, I, I just get to see what Israel did for 40 years. They lived there. Could you imagine being there, knowing that you weren't getting back on the bus and getting out of there? Some of you are living in the desert. Are you willing to accept where you're at? Or are you grumbling? at God's direction in your life. Secondly, they rejected the provision of God. This is even worse. I mean, I, I can understand kind of kind of grumbling a little bit, you know, that you're there in the desert. I, I, I can deal with that one, okay? But think about this. What are they grumbling? What provision were they grumbling about? The manna from heaven. Yes, that there is no responsibility. I mean, do you know why manna was called manna? Because they didn't know what it was. What does manna mean in Hebrew? What is it? There was no, there was no, I mean, you know, God had done miraculous things in leading them out. I mean, first of all, all the plagues in Israel, I mean, in, in Egypt, 
were just incredible to begin with. You know, water turning into blood, the frogs, the flies, the lice, the, the darkness. I mean, it was all incredible. And then you're, going, you're walking through the Red Sea on dry ground like you're walking through one of the aquariums, you know, in Atlanta or wherever. You're just kind of walking through. There's the, you know, you can always imagine what, what fish were there right on the side. You know, you, it's like you're walking through this natural aquarium thing. And then you're standing on the other side. You're watching the, the army, the most powerful army of the world, the army of Egypt, coming through against you. And Moses puts his arms down. And what happens? The size of the aquarium fell. You know? And now all of a sudden the Egyptian army is part of the aquarium. You know? They weren't planning on it, you know? And he wipes out the most powerful army of the world just like that. I haven't even mentioned the fact that there was this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. So wide was that pillar of cloud that it separated the army of Egypt from them while they had the opportunity to walk through the Red Sea. Failed that failed to mention that little coincidence that just happened to have a whirlwind that stayed with them and traveled with them and, and, and had just happened to have lightning or some fire, some, some form of light during the nighttime so they could see. And, and it was just, an, just a coincidence, you know? And I mean, and honestly, there have been times when in the lower parts of the Red Sea, there have been winds that kind of caused the sea to kind of separate a little bit. Not in the deep parts, but in the lower parts. But timing, even if you could say, well, maybe it happened there. Isn't it incredible timing that Moses put his arms up and it happened? And so now they're out there, and, and they start complaining about water. And God does what? How? Out of a rock. There wasn't a river there before. Remember when we talked about it? How many people are there? About a million and a half. 1.6 million people, probably. I mean, this wasn't a little trickle. This wasn't, you know, you've got one of the little, you know, two-gallon or one-gallon lemonade jars from, from, uh, from Walmart, and you've turned to spigot now, you know? And so everybody's just putting their, their cups under there to, to get a glass. How long would it take? You, you, you're certainly hoping that you're one of the first ones to get the water coming out, right? In order to have enough water for 1.6 million people, not to mention all the, uh, the herd and cattle that, that's going to be there, right? How much water do you think you need? You need a lot of water. I'd say that was a pretty good miracle, don't you? Okay? But that's all potentially explainable. Those are all natural things. Those are all, you know... Kind of physical things. Now all of a sudden you say we haven't got any food and God brings quail in. That's natural too. When you know it's quite a coincidence that all these flocks of quail decided to land in our our uh, our, our camp every night, <laughs> you know, all this time. But manna, manna. There was no explanation for for manna. I mean, manna was something that was unheard of. Quail was heard of. Frogs and lice and all that stuff, that was heard of. Hail, brims, you know, that, that was heard of. Nobody ever heard of manna. I mean, this little wafer-like stuff that when the dew settled was there. It wasn't snow. It wasn't frost. It tasted like coriander. I mean, what was this stuff? They had no idea. But here they saw the provision of God. Think about this. Every morning, except for on the Shabbat, which really they saw as well, because God said that he would give them twice as much on Friday, right? Because they weren't going to go out and deliver on Shabbat. They weren't supposed to go out and get, pick it up on the Shabbat on the Saturday. So they see the, the hand of God every day. Think about it. If you would have kept it to the next day, what would have happened? It was full of worms and maggots. But it didn't happen on Shabbat, did it? 
All of a sudden on Shabbat, it works. It's there. Every day, every week, you are seeing the mighty hand of God provide for you. In your summation of the miracle of God in your life visibly every day, worthless. Worthless. God's working in your life miraculously to provide you sustenance is worthless. Without value. Without value. I just can't imagine it. The manna itself, as we're going to see, or as we saw weeks ago, was really the equation with Jesus Christ himself. He is the manna. And so I ask myself the question, same thing. What about us? Are we guilty of grumbling over God's provision? Some of you have a little bit more money than others of you. Some of you may eat better than others of you. Quote, unquote, according to what? According to man's standards. That's exactly right. But what I have found, and I'm sure you found it as well, and it's biblical, is no matter what level you are at, we always want what? A little bit more. How much is always enough? Just a little bit more. <laughs> Just a little, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't care whether you're in the 30,000 or 40,000 uh, bracket or whether you're in the 300,000 or 400,000 bracket. There's always be nice just to have a little bit more. So it doesn't matter to me whether you ate grits this morning or whether you had steak and eggs. Or whether you didn't have anything. Because you're always going to be wanting a little bit more if your eyes aren't focused on Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when he was talking about you can't serve God in what? Mammon. It's pretty close to manna. But anyways, mammon is the Greek word, which means the things that money buys. Materialism. The illustrations he gives us, though, is what? Don't worry about what you're going to wear, eat, drink, where you're going to live. He says, why? Because God knows you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? Then all these things will be added to you. God knows you need to eat. God knows you need to drink. And he knows better than you do what you probably need to eat. And it's not Golden Corral every day, that's for sure. Some of us need to what? Have a diet of manna, probably. And and get back into shape. But are we guilty of grumbling of what God has provided for us? That's just food. What about vehicles? What about homes? What about family? Education? Jobs? Are you content with the provision of God in your life? Secondly, they had the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. This becomes even worse. You say, where's the sin of idolatry here? Well, it's not necessarily here. It's what came about from what here. See, we're going to talk about in a moment this, the, the, their sin and what happened because of their sin. But, but suffice it to say that Moses was told by God to make a what? A, a bronze snake and put it on a pole and to set it up. And, and so people who looked on it, they could live. But later on, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18, that very toll for deliverance became 
a toll of idolatry. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, we read, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, became, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burnt incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Hezekiah, when he became king, removed the high places that people were using for false worship. It says that he, and he cut down the wooden image. That was, that was the Asherah poles. Okay? And, so, and he destroyed the Baal images. Okay? So he's destroying all these, but lumped together with Baal and Asherah was this brazen serpent on a pole, which was kept. Now think about this. Where are they at right now? They're in the wilderness. And we're going to see in a moment, this was only used for what? A period of time. Just while the serpents were there biting them and as a result of their sin. Serpents might show up again. So they keep it just in case, right? It's their good little good luck charm. But the point is, it's, it's done its, its job. It's past its function. But here we are, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, and this thing still exists. And it's been set up in Jerusalem for people to come to and to offer sacrifices, incense to. Isn't that odd? Nehushtan became a symbol of idolatry. Now, what about us today? Does anybody know of anything that's kind of stuck on a, on, on a pole and wrapped around it and made into a brazen image and, and worshipped by many in Christendom? called the crucifix. Now, I don't want to pick on it. I, I don't have a problem necessarily with a crucifix by itself, just as I don't have a problem with the brazen serpent on the pole by itself. I, when I see a crucifix, it's a reminder to me of what Jesus did for me. The sad thing is, for many in Christendom today, it is an idol. It is an idol and they bow themselves to it. If you ever go to a, and that's not a necessarily preaching against Roman Catholicism, because this is beyond Roman Catholicism. Other, um, other denominations do this as well. But they'll have it up there, and they actually then will bow down to it, and it is the center of part, most part of the worships. And many people of a Catholic persuasion will have one, and they will put it in their home, and they will actually bow to it. When they, when they do the genuflecting, what are they doing? It's a sign of the, the cross, because it's with the crucifix. The crucifix is that important to them. Now, it's easy for me, then, to pick on... What you got, Edward? Yes, sir. That, that was a fiery serpent. It's a good question. To make a fiery serpent, and he made a brazen serpent. The idea of fiery, okay, is the word seraph in Hebrew. And so, for example, like, we have the cherubim, and the seraphim, those are the, the titles for angels. Yes, do you remember that? Okay, cherubs, okay.
Okay? Well, the other one is seraphim, and those are actually fiery ones. And those are angels that are fiery ones. Like, so when, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he put seraphim there. They were blazing fiery ones. And so they were fearful. And so anybody who looked on them, they were very fearful. And so it was the idea then of, of the fieriness of it. And so when these, when these serpents bit you, they would make you feel like you were burning up because of all the poison that were there. Okay? There was probably a sand python or something like that that would bite you. And so they would have it. So that's the idea of the fiery serpent. It was a, a serpent that would, okay? And so he just made a, an, an idea of what that serpent would look like, and he made it out of bronze. God told him to make it out of bronze and put it on a pole, okay? But the fiery serpent then wasn't a, a, how it was made. It was the type of serpent that it was. Does that make sense? Okay, good question, Edward. Okay? So, where was I? Crucifix. Pick it on the Catholics. Okay. Um, I don't, but no, here's my point. Because I I don't want to pick on the Catholics. And so we can easily turn around and look at that and pick on Catholics, right? We say, look at that, you know? My question to you is, do you have a tool of worship, an instrument of worship, tradition, that has actually become the object of worship? Why do many churches meet on Sunday night? I mean, it's. I mean, and now I understand. I came from an independent Baptist background. Okay, I grew up Lutheran, but then when I got saved, I was independent Baptist. Went to an independent Baptist seminary and stuff like that. Okay, and there are a lot of "Thus saith the Lord" that aren't in the Bible. Yes. Okay. Now I'm picking on independent Baptists, right? Okay. I'm Baptistic still. I'm more of a Baptist than Baptist. Are. But anyways, but the reality is, we make things beyond Bible. Just like Jesus talked to the, the Pharisees. You know, you, you've broken the law with your traditions. Why do churches meet on Sunday night? Does anybody know? Because. Right? Because. We meet, because we meet on Sunday morning, we meet on Sunday night. Why? Because it's why we've always had it. Well, we meet on Wednesday too, but why do we meet Sunday morning and Sunday night? Ah, agrarian culture. It's because of the agrarian culture. They, went, they met before they went out into the fields, and then after they were in the fields, they came and they met again at nighttime. Because agrarian is agricultural society. They would go out into the fields. They were, they were farmers. They had to take care of the crops, and they had to take care of their herds. And so they would, they would meet early, they would meet later. That's where it all stemmed from. I don't do that. <laughs> they didn't get the first time they come back. That's another, that's another rabbit trail. Anyways. Answer. Originally, did they meet all day? Now, okay, thank you. I love you, Dawn, sometimes. I mean, you're, just, you're awesome. You lead me to the next thing I can say. That's good. Oh, no, it's great. Well, biblically, when did they meet? That's the question. So, they didn't meet on Sunday morning. They, we, we traditionally meet on Sunday morning, we say, to, to, to remember what? The resurrection. Because that's when Christ raised from the dead. Okay? So, that's when we get together. Biblically, they met on Saturday night. They would gather together for Shabbat, Saturday, at the, at the synagogue. They would have the end of Shabbat meal together. That was what's called the love feast. And then they would continue to meet into the evening. That was the first day of the week. But we don't think that way. We think the first day of the week began at midnight. It didn't, to the Jewish mind. The first day of the week began at sunset last night. 
And so when, when Shabbat was over, that began the first day of the week, they had their end the Shabbat meal together, and they would continue on. And that's why Eutychus fell asleep in the window. Because they, they started meeting at 6 o'clock. It was a long day. They've already been out all day. And so now here it is around 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and he's what? He's tired. And Paul's preaching into the morning, man. I love that guy. No, 6 o'clock on, on Friday night was the beginning of Shabbat, and they would have the beginning of the Shabbat meal. That's with family time. Families would do that. And that but that for synagogue, they would actually meet on the, the next day, the, what we would call Saturday. They would call in the middle of the day. Does that make sense? Because the evening and the morning were the first day. And so that evening, that was actually family time. They would have just a dinner together. Okay? And so, so the first day of the week was actually Saturday night. And think about it. It wasn't a Christian society. They didn't have the first day of the week off. What did they do the next morning? They went to work. <laughs> you know? So they went to work on Sundays, or what we refer to as Sunday. And so they met Saturday night. Okay? So anyways, the whole point is, we have a lot of things <laughs> that, that really aren't supposed to be um, the majors, that we've made them into majors. Does that make sense? I mean, it's like I said, when, when, the fact that I believe that Jesus died on a Thursday, not on a Friday. You know what the really most important part of that whole that is? He raised from the dead. That's exactly right. It doesn't matter if he died, if he died on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know? The fact is, because if he only died but he didn't raise from the dead, it's all meaningless. What's really important is that he what? He raised from the dead. And that's the major that we need to be focusing on. That's the major that we need to be telling everybody. But if you talk to somebody who's a Seventh-day Adventist, they believe that you're not going to go to heaven because you don't worship on, on, on Sabbath, on Saturday. The Messianics, Messianic believers, are the same way. If, if they are an ardent Messianic, they would believe that God hopefully might give you a chance to repent when you get to the, the, the judgment seat because you're not worshiping on the Sabbath. It's an amazing thing. We make major, or minors into majors. Okay, and, and the Bible talks about that. So I'm not necessarily, I can pick on Roman Catholicism, but I'm using this illustration to bring it across. We can turn around and we can pick on other denominations for their inconsistencies. But judge not, lest ye be what? Judge. And with what judgment, the, the manner in which you judge other people, God will use the same manner back to you, pressed down and full and overflowing. So you look at somebody who's an alcoholic or a drug addict and you pick on them. And you say, man, I can't believe them, and you judge them. Do you know what their sin is? Self-control. And so do you lack self-control in some area? It may not be alcohol. It may not be drugs. It may be food. It may be something else. It may be your mouth. God's going to give the same judgment to you. And so we can look at all these other religions, and we can look at inconsistencies. Oh, look at that. My question is, what about me? What about us? Am I guilty? Are we guilty of turning instruments of worship into objects of worship? Do they become more important than God himself? Just as Jesus challenged the Pharisees and and called them uh, whitewashed sepulchers about. If Jesus was here today and he opened up your heart for everybody to see, what would he expose that's sitting upon the throne that only he's supposed to be on? Is it your family? Is your family more important than God? Good, that's a good answer, Sarah. Should be answered is no, right? It shouldn't be. But is it? What about your job? 
Is it an idol? What about your wife or your husband? We shouldn't put anything above God. But let's look at the prophetical side. That's really the important side. In it we see the shadow. The shadow is this um, thing that became Nehushtan, this, this brazen servant put on a pole. But in what we read in Numbers 21, what was, the, what was going on here? What was, what was the situation? What was the condition that the people were in? was death. When the brazen serpent was made, yes, people were already what? Dying. Dying. See, you understand they'd already sinned. They'd already mouthed off to God. They were at enmity with God. And God said, fiery serpents are going to come upon you. And whoever they bite, they will what? They will die. So the people cried out and said, oh, we have sinned. Oh, please forgive us. Moses, do something. You know, do something. I'm tired of you whiny people. I'm going to do something. I'm picking up my tent. I'm leaving. You know, I'm finally going to give in to what God said, and you're going to make a whole new nation here. Moses didn't do that. You ever wonder if you were Moses, how many times you'd, want, you'd be thinking that, though? And so he says, if he goes out to God, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make this brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and I want you to stick it in the middle of the camp. So their condition is death. Death. Death is occurring all around them. Well, what's the cure? Look and live. Look and live. Now, I want you to think about this. If you, how many people were in this camp? 1.6 million. So this camp would have fit in our parking lot, right? I don't think so. 1.6 million people is more than there are in Augusta. Okay? This is a big camp. If you got bit, Mark, you guys saw that either that, that cotton mouth or, or um, copperhead, right? If you had a bit bit, what would you guys have done? Run quickly. Go to the hospital. Go to the place for a what? A cure. Where you might have the cure. Well, God put a place for a cure. He put the hospital, if you would, in the middle of the camp. If you were bit by the serpent, what did you have to do? Up. Oh, you missed the first step. I led you. I led you into that missed the first step. What was the first thing you had to do if you got bit? No. Believe. Yes. The first thing you had to do was believe. If you didn't believe God in putting out that cure, would you go? You wouldn't go. What would you do? You'd do whatever you could to cure it yourself. You'd be drawing X's. You know, the, the, the old uh, Native American thing, you know, cut the X on it, <laughs> suck it out, <laughs> spit out the poison, you know. And you'd be doing everything you can. You'd put, Where's that leech at? Get the leech. Get the, you know, whatever. You'd be doing everything you could to do what? Cure it yourself. The problem is, the time that you wasted would have what? Killed you. The first step of the cure is that you had to believe God. You have to believe. It's by faith. And faith alone. And when you believe by faith, it will change the way you think and act. See? So you believe. It changes the way you think. I believe God has a cure. And now it changes the way you act because you're going to get up off your duff and you're going to do what? Move it all post-haste to go look at this thing to do for something that doesn't make any sense. I mean, who would ever thought to go look at a bronze serpent on a wooden pole to be healed from a snake bite? 
You already saw them. I mean, if I did that, come on, guys. I mean, I should have brought the cross in from the back. If I brought the cross in here and we set, the, set a cross up here, and I said to you, okay, from now on, I just want you to know if you're bit by that copperhead or that cotton mouth, all you got to do is come to the church. You know, hopefully you have a key. Otherwise, you got to find me to get a key. Anyways, and you come in, you look at that cross, and instantly you're healed. How many of you would do that? I think doctor's hospital would get you before this building would get you. Do you get it? But that's what they had to do. They had to believe. And then they had to act on the belief. They had to do what God had said. So man's condition was death. God's cure was for them to believe and obey. Trust and obey. Acknowledgement of their condition. Acknowledgement of God's provision. And you know what? As we look at the, uh, the fulfillment, it's not going to be any different. Man's condition Death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It hasn't changed. We are at enmity with God. That God commended His love for us and while we were yet sinners. And there are sinners dying all around us, around this vast camp of the world, if you would, every day. They are bitten by the serpent, if you would, which is sin. And as James 1 says, we can't say when we have sinned that the devil made us do it or God made us do it, but that the sin welled up from where? From within us, from our own self. And so we're bit with sin, we're bit with that serpent, and we are what? We're dying. But God's got the cure. And it's the same exact thing. God's cure is you must what? Acknowledge your condition. You've got to admit that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself. You do not have the cure. You can't cut the X and suck the sin out and spit it to the side. You can't pour alcohol in it. You can't put a leech on your spiritual condition and suck the, suck the sin out. There are many religions out there who have their own Gospels. False Gospels. Gospels of works. That if you just do this, this, and this, you'll be okay. God says, no, you have to believe. What work must we do to in order the kingdom of God? This is the work of God. Believe. Believe. And so, right, so, so the, the Philippian jailer says to, to Paul, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your household. And that's acknowledging the provision of God. And so in John 3, as we read this morning in our, in our Bible reading, we saw that as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then after that verse, verse 14 and 15, we come to the most well-known, famous verse in the entire Bible. It's amazing, when I teach at Awana conferences, I always ask them, what, what verse do you think is the most important verse in the entire Bible? And, and undoubtedly, 80% of the people in those classes are going to tell me, what? John 3, 16. It's not. It's not the most important. Just you, there's another message later on. It's Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to nine. Okay, you can look at that later. Verse five specifically, Jesus said so himself. Anyways, but John three sixteen says what? For God what? Somebody demonstrate that for me. For God what? So loved the world. It's not what it means. I hate to destroy. It, it, it's in this manner. The word is hutos in the Greek. It, the so there doesn't mean oh, so. It means for God in this manner loved the world. He just said, Jesus just said, 
as a serpent must be lifted up, as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For God, so, for God in this manner loved the world. That whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. So just as that brazen serpent being on the on that pole was lifted up in the middle of the camp, so we've got to come to Jesus Christ. So I ask you, with the wages of sin being death, unbeliever, do you recognize your plight? And are you willing to accept God's cure? Now I don't I'm assume everybody's a believer here, but I don't know that. You know if you're not. And I don't want to get to heaven one day and find out that you were deceiving yourself as well as the people around you and you weren't challenged about God's cure. But for the believer, the wages of sin is still death. It's still death. Even after God has cured you positionally and you know that you're going to heaven, the fact is the serpent's still out there, isn't he? And you're still being bit. And the wages of sin is still death. And the cure is still looking to Jesus. If you confess your sin, then he is what? Faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In your bulletin, there is another song. It's called, As When the Hebrew Prophet Raised. It goes through um, this illustration and applies it to Christ. It's a Written by Isaac Watts, a great song. Um, not in any of our hymnals, though. I can't find it um, anywhere at all. And we're going to sing it to the tune of Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. You, you know that tune. And so we'll, we'll sing that together, and then we'll pray when we're done. Let's stand together.